0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and you are now listening to the series on Mormonism. And I have a very special guest that I'm very excited to talk to. I am with Dr. Samuel Morris Brown, who wrote this great, very thought-provoking book, the most thought-provoking book I've read this year, called Joseph Smith's Translation, The Words and Worlds of Early Mormonism, uh, published by Oxford University Press. And Sam, thanks so much for being on. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Yeah, thank you. So before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background, your education, influences?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm middle-aged now, which means that I tend to think a lot about parenting and mentoring, and that's been a fun place to end up. In terms of my path toward this middle age, I was a I was a poor kid from the West, ended up in Boston for college as a one of those uh, needy scholarship students whose lives are transformed in many complicated ways by the meritocracy, uh, studied linguistics in college, and then felt uh, called to be a physician against my better judgment uh, and followed through on it and uh, went to med school and uh, in, uh, just before I started med school, met the woman that became my wife and, and we started a family in Boston where I'd stuck. And then we sort of felt the call of the West again. So I came back West to finalize and get established as a, as a physician scientist, as a medical school professor. You, You never quite know how to say the the name of what you do when you're a physician scientist because people feel like being a doctor is the fanciest and best thing and there's certainly a for me a sacred component to doctoring but the the reality is that most of my professional life is spent doing science doing research trying to figure out how to treat sepsis and ards which are two frightening uh, inflammatory syndromes life-threatening infection and a serious lung injury Uh, that can take people in the prime of life or can take people in later phases of life. So I I work in that. That's mostly what I do. But back when I was having this argument with God about whether I was going to be a doctor or not, uh, one of the things I really thought I'd rather do than be a doctor was to get a a PhD in history of religion. And I was really influenced at that point. And and I think for a lot of people of my generation uh, with interest in history and religion we were really uh, influenced by Mercea Eliade the Romanian uh, mystic cum scholar cum founder of the history of religion school at University of Chicago and it just you know he he drove a lot of my early thinking and i'm aware of course that people are no longer particularly drawn to study eliade uh, in fact, his his successor at Chicago, Jay Z Smith, who then became another uh, influence on me, I was was pretty insistent that Eliade had misinterpreted much of the data. But but there was a sense in Eliade of the connection between uh, time of the present and a and a yon time or illud tempus, as he would say. That I think for me as a latter day saint, and I'd, I'd been an atheist up to age eighteen, but then on the cusp of college as i was heading off to the big city became a theist and and over time a practicing latter-day saint uh but for me as a latter-day saint that image of two times and of the capacity to connect across the two times especially through relationships with sacred ancestors became really i think an important part of my initial thinking you know i moved on and um find increasingly in recent years that I uh, learned the most from people who are uh, open to wondering about the limits of our uh, modernist assumptions. And there, I think, the philosopher slash armchair theologian Charles Taylor uh, from Canada is probably an important Influence uh, on my thinking, and that so that that's my sort of long and meandering way. I apologize, I meandered as I sometimes do. Uh, that was the sort of intellectual backdrop for my deciding that I wanted, uh, for at least the last fifteen years or so, to think carefully about the early Latter Day Saint uh, experience, thinking about Joseph Smith, but also thinking about the other participants in what they. What what they thought of as a restoration of the gospel, and what the the biggest church that derives from Joseph Smith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints in Utah, uh, currently prefers to be called a uh, restoration. So, thinking about this early restoration uh, within uh, at, at that at that moment as it's just sort of congealing in the eighteen twenties to eighteen forties has been. Uh, the focus of my work in Mormon history. I hope that's responsive to your question. Sorry, that sort of wandered.
0: No, it's a it's a great answer. Thank you, Sam. It it definitely gives us a good background. So I really appreciate it. And so I, one thing that kind of really picked up on what you're talking about and what your book really touches on, or at least kind of how what I saw when I read it, was that connection. When Joseph Smith, you're talking about like the connection between times. I mean that's a that's a theme that's within your book with uh, Joseph Smith's translations. So how did you get this book idea?
1: That's a great question. Uh, it it was, uh, you know, the second the second Mormon history article I published ten or fifteen years ago was this attempt to decode the mystery of these bizarre polyglot sides in. Joseph Smith's political writing from the Nauvoo period in the 1840s. And I don't know whether you've wandered through those sources yourself, but you'll be reading this kind of idiosyncratic political treatise. And then all of a sudden, there'll be this string of unrelated sentences that are in 15 or 30 different languages and then translated into English. And I just got curious about because I was I was a linguistics undergraduate and I'd been a I minored in Russian and lived in Russia for a long time, not as part of an LDS mission, but as part of some global health work uh, and some early college explorations, and had become a Russian translator and interpreter. I translated a book by a Russian Orthodox priest named Alexander Min, and then was doing live interpreting. You know, mostly in medical settings. So I, I, by the time I was out of medical school, I'd had a lot of experience living at the interfaces of languages and cultures. And I just got really curious about it. So out of just sheer idle curiosity, I started to track things down. And I realized a few things. One was that uh, the aside, and in fact, most of the documents they were in were written by W.W. W. Phelps, who was one of Joseph Smith's assistants called a scribe and that they were largely correct they were idiosyncratic but they were largely correct and that crucially they were a part of an effort by joseph smith to master human languages so there was that that had been kind of present as a as a bit of of, almost of a hobby interest that was percolating along this interest that they had in foreign languages and ancient languages but then there was also, as I was doing that first book on the on the relationship between restoration theology and uh, mortality and the prospect of death, uh, I think it was my chapter five was on the seer and thinking about what the seer's job was vis-a-vis relationships to the dead and the recovery of their lost stories. It occurred to me that there was a lot going on with The notion of language and the capacity of language somehow, if it's liberated from the burden of its earthiness to penetrate through boundaries, that made me think that I really ought to explore at length that notion of sacred language that I'd found in that chapter five on seerhood. And so actually before In Heaven as it is on Earth, that first book was out, I'd already started working on this this uh, story about language and the way language was used and the way it was used to break down barriers of time and space, ways it was uh, used to overcome alienation. Uh, And, you know, had about a third of the book written. And then we had a health crisis in the family that really derailed everything. And uh in a in a in a sacred way i think derailed uh a lot of the stuff that I was working on including in my in my day job and and caused this kind of resetting uh, uh reprioritization and more careful thinking about big questions and as a consequence, this book that i'd started like in twenty eleven really through twenty seventeen twenty eighteen was just quietly in the background as I focused on other things and as I focused on family responsibilities. And, that, you know, there's something about a health crisis, and I don't know whether you or someone you love has been through it, but there's a kind of moral clarity that can come through health crisis if you're lucky that can cause you to be curious about asking harder questions than maybe you were asking previously. And I found that was true for me as well. So in the 20 teens, As I was focusing on family and the day job, but still wanting to keep a little bit of humanism and humanities and religion in my life alongside the the day job in science and the and the day to day tasks of being a devoted family man, I I end up reading in Charles Taylor and in an array of. Philosophical and theological works. Erzim Kohak, a Czech ecotheologist, wrote, wrote this just astonishing book. I think it's called "From the Embers to the Stars" or "Between the Embers and the Stars," something like that, about the notion of eternity and the night sky and stillness and the interface between technology and vastness. And 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 simultaneously, as I'm working through Taylor. I'm beginning to become increasingly skeptical of the meritocracy that had birthed me as a thinker in in some respects, And, and becoming just more and more curious about what are the assumptions we make about the structure of life, both in and out of the academy, and how much of it actually is necessary, compelling, and persuasive, and how much of it is arbitrary and evanescent and ephemeral. And so in that context, this this project that previously had been sort of gently inflected by Eliadin thought that was recruiting Jay-Z Smith's thinking about the nature of religion, that was curious about the interfaces between Protestant history and non-Protestant history in America's 19th century, I realized that that broader project needed to be open to the possibility that there was something to learn about the modern world from it. And that's when the structure of the book shifted so that it then has uh, what I call the first section, which is contexts, which is thinking through what are the assumptions that we make about human language about time and about human identity that are shifting over the course of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries and that are are leading in in a and sometimes in really a staggering accidental kind of way, toward the world that we inhabit now in the late 20th and early 21st century. And that got me thinking about some of those questions that you had talked about, these harder questions, about what do we mean when we talk about humans as machines? Is is sort of a common refrain now. What what do we mean when we use epicurean language about randomness and artificiality what do, we, what do we mean when we invoke these stories that we call darwinian but are actually older uh, than darwin and not not even cleanly related to the science that darwin is is tinkering with and and what do we do broadly with this sense we have in the modern world of alienation and isolation and separation and then can we use the early Latter-day Saints, not just Joseph Smith, although it tends to congeal around him as the, as the founder, can we use the early Latter-day Saints to think our way back through some of these questions? So that's where that context came. It came from this gestation of this project that had gone really onto the back burner as I focused on other important things. And then thankfully, there was, that, uh, there was a period where the family health crisis had calmed. And I was able to uh, just have the fun that I always have working on and writing history. And then I was able to bring in that first section, contexts, and explore then the specific texts that uh, Joseph Smith described under the rubric translation. And it really, in retrospect, made a lot of sense that part of the puzzle that I was trying to answer with this book was... Uh, what does it mean that there is a word translation that means the movement of experiences, stories, or ideas from one language group to another? That one we're accustomed to—that's linguistic. But then, the same word translation in, in early Restoration thought is also a reference to a transformation of human beings that makes them capable of tolerating the divine presence. And you know, the question is: Are these accidental homophones with no relation? Are they the same word? Are they semantic domains of a unitary concept? How do they all fit together? And it occurred to me in retrospect, and so often it's true that life makes more sense in retrospect than in prospect, it, I realized that this interest in the philosophical context and in the text was a kind of parallel to this broader complementarity of translation as the transformation of human beings. And translation of them as the movement of ideas from one group to another.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff, Sam. Because the questions you're asking—they're mind-bending, but they're also soul-searching. It's—it's it's really profound stuff. And um, you had mentioned this thing in your introduction, and you talked about it throughout the book, or tor- especially towards the end. Um, you talked about a tar- like targums, and I just thought it was so interesting if you could explain that, like, what was a targum, and and, and how does that correlate with what you wrote?
1: Thanks, Daniel. Uh, it, I, I, I'm aware that it can feel a little bit uh, foofy to borrow these ancient terms, uh, ancient scriptural terms. But But I think in this case, it's actually worth the effort and the risk of seeming pretentious. Targum is an Aramaic word. And one thing that I think most of us don't understand, and I didn't understand until I got delving into this area, is that when we talk about the Hebrew Bible the Hebrew Bible even for the Jews for most of its history was in a foreign language most of the Jews were speakers of Aramaic some of them might be speakers of Greek for example that was a common imperial language that would have been used it but as a consequence i you know i always grew up thinking that well, I mean, the Jews speak Hebrew, like it was their language. And so the Bible was in their language, but the reality is it wasn't. Uh, and biblical Hebrew and Aramaic are not mutually intelligible languages. So you have this situation, even among Jews, where they needed help translating the Hebrew Bible. But we also know that the Hebrews anciently, and even even to this day, many have an important attachment to the sacred authority of the word. That there are certain words that are sacred and there's a status accorded the Hebrew Bible that's not accorded other even liturgical texts. So these Aramaic speaking Jews were confronted with a problem. They had an ancient text that they held sacred but they didn't actually understand it very well because it was in a foreign language. They needed the capacity to translate it, to make it vital and alive in their day, to make it relevant to their situation. But they knew that for it to really be binding on them in some way, that the translations, these updatings, these bringing into new life, had to have some sort of textual authority of their own. And that's where the Targums come in. The Targums start out oral, but eventually they do get written down and they get a kind of secondary canonical status in some uh, sections of Judaism uh, that really illuminates some of the experience that Jews were having at the time. And for a lot of observers of Latter-day Saints, it's a live question what you do with these scriptural texts that are new with the Latter-day Saints. There's the Book of Mormon, there's the Book of Abraham, Uh, There is uh, a Joseph Smith translation of the Bible itself directly that has a few different components pulled together. And there have been these attempts over the years to try to define Latter-day Saint scripture on analogy to other ancient scriptures. And some people will talk about Midrash, a kind of extensive exegesis. Others will talk about Pseudepigrapha, where a prophet writes a scripture in the name of a of another prophet with greater authority. And those have been classic accounts of the Book of Mormon over the years. But but for, for many people, that's felt like it hasn't quite captured what's going on with those scriptures. And then Krister Stendahl, the uh, bishop in Sweden and the Harvard Divinity School professor uh, years ago, I think in the 1970s, suggested that the third Nephi section of the Book of Mormon, which is concerned with Jesus Christ visiting ancient America and preaching all over again, the Sermon on the Mount, Christer Stendhal said that this felt like a Targum to him, this bringing to life in the interface between the spoken and the written word, an ancient scriptural text that becomes binding scripture in the present. And it it occurred to me that Stendhal was absolutely correct, and that the, the notion of Targum was applicable not only to third Nephi, Sermon on the Mount, but to all of the Book of Mormon, and frankly, all of Joseph Smith's scriptural corpus, this bringing back to life at the interface between the spoken and the written word of ancient scripture that was otherwise locked inscrutably in antiquity. So I I hope that people will play along with the use of Targum, because I think that better captures the relationship between Joseph Smith, his scriptural corpus, and uh, the Bible text themselves.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really appreciated when you had brought that up in the introduction, because once you explained what a targum was, I could see your line of thinking and where you were going with it. And it was really interesting. So thank you for explaining that. So I do have some questions about like the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. But before we jump into that, I think I want to ask you like a broader question of, how did Joseph Smith balance, because you talk about modernity, you talk about ancient history, these connections between times and spaces and boundaries, and how translation it correlates with all that. So how did Joseph Smith balance this idea of modernity with ancient history? Because like you're talking about, the Latter-day Saint Church tries to connect to the past, but as you say, things are never, there's, is there really such thing as a primordial past? Is there really such thing as like a a pure, you know, primitive past that people are going to, or is, are things just constantly evolving? And how did Joseph Smith see all that with what, with what his religious mission was?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's interesting that you talked about this question of whether a primordial past could even exist or whether everything is always evolving. And that. That's a reminder of the extent to which these resurgent Epicurean notions have become woven into the background of our scholarship and of our lives. And it was fascinating to me as I came back to this project after some time away to think about the possibility that this study of Joseph Smith and the thinking of Smith and the other early Latter-day Saints might have something to say about the maybe two easy assumptions that we have about the nature of reality that, that in retrospect sort of derive from, and there's this uh, political scientist, Gillespie, I think his first name is Michael, uh, that wrote this history of medieval nominalism and its implications for Protestant modernity. That there's a sense in which the, the great pivot is the pivot away from Aristotelian Platonic theology and toward nominalist theology where nominalist theology says there's not some pure anything. There's not a pure primordium. There's not a pure essence of goodness. There is not an independent reality of the categories, classes, and experiences we might find. And Joseph Smith is caught in this period where many of the assumptions that I just mentioned, the notion of nominalism, the anti-Platonism, this Uh, shifting Epicureanism, the notion of a sort of permanent fracture and disunity that's baked into the physics of the cosmos, the notion that metaphysics are, uh, are a remnant of the past that ought to be jettisoned and that we can find a pure physics if only we will eliminate a metaphysics. All of these things are happening. They're all a part of the modernist project, and they're all a part of the world that Joseph Smith is entering. And sometimes it comes in learned treatises. Other times it comes in free thought arguments and debates and lyceum debates. Sometimes it comes in liberal Protestant theology, but you've got these all these ideas intersecting. And there's a sense in which Joseph Smith sees a lot of stuff that he really likes. He likes the sense of flexibility. He likes the sense that Calvinist predestination is being abandoned within America. He likes the notion that there is power that can inhere in human beings, but he doesn't like a lot of the other baggage. And uh, you know, my my editor, who's a close friend, uh, I, I kept wanting to use the word orthogonal uh, you know an orthogonal plane is a plane that comes in uh, that comes in sort of perpendicular in, in the image of a plane meaning that if, if we're accustomed to talking about the you know the the ancient or the modern divide or the secular or the religious divide or the spiritual or the temporal divide you could imagine those as laid out on an axis or a spectrum moving from one side to the other and you can want to put Joseph Smith Into a particular location on the spectrum, but what occurred to me was that Joseph Smith so frequently was really on an orthogonal plane that the the debates and the binaries and the dichotomizations that were of concern to other people didn't make any sense to him, and he sort of wanted to find his own way, and it ends up being this fascinating pastiche or mélange or synthesis, depending on what kind of a mood you're in, of often of of ideas that were often perceived to be mutually contradictory so you you get in smith these little glimmers of platonism which if you're accustomed to calvinism which was the predominant strain of christianity that joseph smith was sort of situating himself and his followers against it seems very strange to flicker toward platonism and then utterly reject human depravity and to see human beings as these divine or, or incipient divine beings filled with power. And it was also very strange for him to be iconoclastic. You know, there were plenty of other people, Thomas Jefferson famously, there are plenty of other people that are wanting to write the Protestant Bible into a totally new scripture. But relatively few of them were interested in doing that as a kind of metaphysically robust and idiosyncratically mystical passage back to the time when there was no time or back to the the very beginnings of the world and and you get this sense that Joseph Smith commonly when uh when forced to try to comment on a dichotomization said, yep, both are right. I'm going my own way. And I, and I think that, you know, I started out an earlier draft of the book was really trying to think through how to make Charles Taylor's specific notions about trade-offs map onto the early Latter-day Saint experience. And and when you really get down to the brass tacks of it, you realize that Joseph Smith was refusing to abide the playbooks of modernism and of secularity versus religiosity. And I think that that both allows us now to realize how artificial so many of these uh, dichotomizations and conflicts are. And also to begin to understand a little bit more about what was at play in these post-Calvinist, metaphysically deep, very democratic, sort of pro-humanist arenas that were simultaneously trying to solve the sense of isolation and alienation that people had uh, as they were entering into these modern changes. I hope that's a useful answer.
0: No, it's very interesting for sure. And it kind of touches on the next question I wanted to ask. So how did Smith connect uh, humanity with the divine? Cause you, you, and you had talked about that a little bit in your prior answer.
1: Yeah. It, you know, and there's one thing that I, there are a few little nuggets, you know, you read these texts long enough and in, in, context and read enough of the context and you, you finally start to figure some out and there's this term aman a-h-m-a-n that is used extensively in the early restoration and it's a sacred name of god and it's thought to be a sacred name of god in the primordial language and uh i'm pretty sure i figured out the etymology to it and uh at the risk of being coy, I'll I'll say that the solution to the etymology you just have to read the book to to find that. But but what matters for the answer to your question here is that Aman is and is a a metaphysical echo of human, and it's the name of God, and, and there is a sense in which that really speaks to Joseph Smith's. Notion that there's a plain surface level of human beings that has them as mere biological animals who are probably depraved in some important way, so there's that kind of surface level of a human being, but then, by token of this ontology bestowing name Aman, they then are simultaneously participating in. A metaphysics of human divine connection, and there's, you know, the the more carefully you read early Mormonism, the more persuaded you are that the Protestants were absolutely correct that this was a heresy. <laughs> right? you, I mean, you read that <laughs> theology; <laughs> they, 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 they are not playing by the established creedal Christian rules, and in this case, the rule that that Smith and others are breaking is the notion that incarnation happens once for all in Jesus It's very clear that smith is elaborating an incarnational theology that has every human being simultaneously a human and a god and you know it's it's not the same as ancient mesopotamian paganism uh, you know pagan uh, polytheism so when people protest, no, we're not, you know, polytheists—not the way you think. That, that's true; they're not Mesopotamian polytheists, but there's nevertheless a kind of plurality of divinity that, once again, speaks to this 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 right that this comparison of Plato, Aristotle, that theology versus the nominalist theology. There's the unity, the one, versus the plurality, the many. You see Smith saying, yep, got both of them, right? There is an essence. There is a divine essence in which we all live and breathe and have our being. There is a metaphysics in which we are grounded. And by the way, it turns out God is is perfectly plural. And he talks about the plurality of gods in precisely that sense. So he's playing at this notion that there are multiple levels to read and experience and that names matter and that it turns out that human beings have both mortal and divine names, and knowing them both brings them into a kind of incarnation of, of as humans and gods. That sounds very much like the traditional Christian theology of Jesus, as you know, the the Eastern Orthodox talk about the man God, uh, and so my sense is that there is a kind of democratization of incarnation or democratization of christliness that is happening with joseph smith that is something that speaking again to the complexity of trying to map joseph smith onto ancient versus modern feels consummately modern in its plurality but also hopelessly antique in its metaphysics
0: Yeah. What I really enjoyed about your book is because you were touching on, I felt, at least for me, I felt like you were touching on arguments that, you know, Terrell Givens had kind of talked about in his book, People of Paradox, where he's, you know, he talks about how Joseph Smith was reaching farther back, you know, not just to Jesus, not just to, you know, Abraham, not just to Adam, but even before that, and how that was really profound. But then you bring that line of thinking with the translation process and why, like you had said, words matter stories matter, getting the, you know, getting the narrative down and kind of connecting time to bring out these interesting ideas. It was all really fascinating stuff. And I, and I'm going to borrow some of the questions that you had even introduced your book, because I just thought they were really good. And I thought it would give people a good taste of what they can expect to kind of read in your book. Because especially, you know, the pivotal, you know, text that Joseph Smith translates, you know, quote unquote, translates and starts the movement is the Book of Mormon. So what is the relationship between the Book of Mormon and Smith's, you know, engagement of biblical texts?
1: Yeah, and again, this will sound a little cute, but I, I'm hopeful that it means something more than cuteness. It I realized as I was working through these texts and looking at their interdependencies and thinking from the perspective of the Targum that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon and the Book of Mormon translated the Bible. And it seems to me that that's very clearly what's happening. The Book of Mormon is bringing the Bible to life by, in a sense, almost like the phoenix, sort of burning the Protestant Bible to the ground. Destroying the possibility of a fixed canon, uh, fixing all sorts of unclarities and strangenesses and linguistic infelicities and solecisms, eliminating all that, bringing it to clarity, and then bringing it into the story that transforms America. So that the Book of Mormon is destroying the Protestant Bible to recover the primordial Bible, and it understands the the process by which it does so as a process of translation. And when you understand it in those terms, I think the Book of Mormon then inaugurates this long-term project of translating the Bible, and not just translating the Bible in the sense of trying to get just the right word but translating it in this metaphysically rich sense of bringing it into new life in a new community in a way that is divinely inspired and directed and is a co-creation with human collaborators with God. So I'm I'm sympathetic, and I think you and others know that I'm a practicing Latter-day Saint. I try in my academic work to understand in a way that does not require particular faith commitments. Uh, but for me as a practicing Latter-day Saint, this this model makes a good deal of sense for the Book of Mormon and related scripture to continue to be scripture, even as I'm hopeful that for people outside the faith tradition, looking on academically, it will also provide a kind of, of structure or shape that would allow you to think about how these different scriptures would interrelate with each other in their intertextual relationships. But it seems to me with that preface that the Book of Mormon then establishes a mode of interacting with the Bible that is durable across Joseph Smith's other translation projects. And I think there's a real unity to those translation projects that uh, we sometimes under underestimate because it is true the Book of Mormon reads very differently than the Book of Abraham for example or the uh, portions of the New Translation of the Bible that are visionary, the the early ones that are now in what's called the Book of Moses for the Utah LDS Church. uh, they're, They're different. I'm not saying they're identical, but they are participating in the same project in very similar ways.
0: Yeah. And I never thought of the Book of Mormon as a targum. I, I mean, I didn't even know what a targum was until I read your book, and it was just really fascinating stuff. So then, you know, so so Joseph Smith has the Book of Mormon. You know, it, it comes from because he's got these golden plates, and he's you know, quote unquote, translates them. But then, you know, he gets. Uh, you, you talk about the you know the Egyptian funerary papyri that you know Joseph Smith eventually you know quote translates. And that becomes the Book of Abraham. So what's Smith doing when he handles this Egyptian you know, papyri, and then he you know, is starting to dictate these stories from the name of Abraham? I mean, it's similar to the Book of Mormon, but it's, it's different too. And it brings out a lot more of these more, you could argue, just these deep thoughts and you know connections to the past that maybe, at least in my opinion, the Book of Mormon really doesn't do.
1: Yeah, I think you're correctly drawing attention to many of the subtle and important differences between the scriptural texts. I think they are fundamentally concerned with the same sets of problems, but I think you're right. They do come at it from different perspectives. So the backstory is that in 1835, Joseph Smith and colleagues purchased some funerary papyri from some mummies that have been taken out of Thebes and, uh... Joseph Smith and several of his lieutenants interact with these papyri. This is at a time when Champollion's decoding of hieroglyphs had not really gained much traction. These were not; it, this was not a common assumption uh, about the world. And and even if Champollion's cracking of the of the syllabary of the hieroglyphs had been widely known, uh it was rejected because of longstanding traditions about the sacred power of the hieroglyph, that a hieroglyph could be more than it appeared to be. So even after Champollion makes this pretty modernist argument that, in fact, hieroglyphs are just ways of encoding syllables of the ancient Egyptian-spoken language, there's still these really important traditions that argue the possibility that there are certain forms of words or certain written symbols or images that are portals in some respects to uh, to something else. And And in the case of Joseph Smith, these hieroglyphs appear, and it seems pretty clear that this is what he's saying, at least as I read him, that these hieroglyphs were in fact sacred portals to the Abrahamic past, and they were the infrastructure for Uh, what I call an Egyptian Bible. That's again, a Targum. And now it's a Targum that is concerned with the end of the primeval history of the Bible. The primeval history is Genesis chapters one through 11. And the primeval history takes you up to Abraham. And then Abraham initiates the patriarchal period of the Hebrew Bible. And there's a sense in which Joseph Smith's primary focus is a religious uh, figure as a prophet or a seer, as he would have understood himself to be, is concerned with decoding and recovering this primeval history. And there's a kind of sense, I think pretty robust sense, uh, to having a scripture that then completes the primeval history and the story of Abraham. And uh, there are these disputes that I, I don't that I think are are probably off base on both sides that are fighting about whether what Joseph Smith was doing with the book of Abraham was a traditional scholarly linguistic translation. And I've noticed that you've used scare quotes uh, several times about translation. And I think that the use of, you know, quote unquote, or scare quotes around translation are related to the relative lack of Non-linguistic models of translation uh, for people trying to explain what's going on. And I, you know, I originally I had actually titled this "The Metaphysics of Translation." This book, and then my editor at Oxford, Cynthia Reed, was very smart and and has been around for a long time. So there's no way anybody's going to buy a book called "The Metaphysics of Translation." So come up with a better <laughs> title. Um, but but what I'm trying to argue for is that. Reading translation as only linguistic misunderstands what was going on in early Mormonism. And I think that's true at a scholarly level. And I think it's probably also relevant to the various communities of faith that are associated with Joseph Smith and the early restoration. So to put it too simply, the book of Abraham seems to me to be. Uh, an Egyptian Bible that is a targum of the tail end of the primeval history, tearing it into the career of Abraham, that takes advantage of the fact that hieroglyphs and hieratic script were metaphysical conduits to something else, and and I think that model honestly is accurate phenomenologically if you're describing what the participants thought was going on as they were participating in them, but I think is also able to be really open to robust, robust, not not modernist, not with lots of he- hesitations and equivocations, but to robust theologies for practitioners. So I, I would say I'm I'm aware that this has been sort of a controversial topic, uh, particularly in recent years around this question of, is this a traditional linguistic scholarly translation of an ancient text? But I, I guess what I'm arguing is that's the wrong question to be asking of it. That question is foreign to the book itself and is foreign to the movement and the confluence of religious individuals that gave it birth.
0: Yeah, it's a very helpful way to look at the book of Abraham. I think you've brought up questions that very few I don't think anybody that I know of has even asked. So no, thank you so much for that. It was really interesting stuff. So talking about all this, then how does all this how does all these restoration scriptures relate to Smith's, you know, building of temples and the temple liturgy that he ends up ends up creating?
1: That was something that was really a bit of a surprise to me as I was working through it, I was trying to figure out, you know, there's so much in the Latter-day Saint Temple endowment that's concerned with breaking through the bonds of time and 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 sacred language. So I, I knew that the temple needed to fit somehow into the book, but I wasn't really sure how to make it work. But then as I'm working through these texts, I, I realized that The book of Abraham is a temple text that, you know, there's this long sort of story and argument about Masonic influence on this temple endowment. And clearly there are Masonic elements to it that Joseph Smith repurposes and translates. But there's a lot more going on than these translated Masonic components. And a lot of it has to do with the bringing into life of these scriptures that Joseph Smith had been revealing along. So it became clear to me that Smith's earlier translations were repurposed yet again within the temple endowment. So there was a unity between those scriptures and the endowment. But then what struck me so hard was that human beings were themselves being translated in the process. And that's and here I'm very mindful of and and uh, happy to comply with the prohibitions about uh, being too explicit about the contents of the temple endowment outside the temple. And I argue in the book that there's a there's a special role that that sacred silence plays. But uh, it's the prohibition does not exclude acknowledging that there is within the temple a revisiting of. Uh, Eve and Adam and their plight as the primordial parents in the primordial paradise. And it clicked for me as I was thinking it through and reading the text that this is a moment in which human beings become themselves scriptural, that they enter scripture and that they enter scripture for the purpose of being transformed in order to tolerate the presence of God. And it it would almost, you know, we're also skeptical about uh, neatly wrapped presence. But that realization that in the temple, those two senses of translation came into a deep concordance really struck me as true and as a kind of indication certainly for me that that insight that i'd been chewing on through the book was in fact correct that when joseph smith reveals or, or creates whatever your perspective might happen to be this magnum opus it's a magnum opus that unites the twin senses of translation in a kind of consummation of these scriptural translations he'd been pursuing
0: oh brilliant Again, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Samuel Morris Brown. We're talking about his fascinating new book that just came out from Oxford University Press, Joseph Smith's Translation: The Words and Worlds of Early Mormonism. And I know we've only touched on a few things that are in your book, but I just hope to give the listeners just a taste of just some of the really deep, good questions that you're asking that Joseph Smith created. And, and one thing again that I kind of I feel like your book reiterates. You know, there's this constant, you know, story that's kind of purported about Joseph Smith and you hear it all the time that he was this country bumpkin that really didn't know how to do things. And I mean, in your book just shows that Joseph Smith really was a deep, deep thinker. He was really, a he really had some brilliant ideas that are, that are helpful to, to talk about even to this day. So I, I just found it very, really, a very good book. And I just wanted to ask also, so what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the future?
1: Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Right now, to be honest, I've been working 14 hours a day, six and a half days a week on COVID-19. I'm a physician scientist, and I work on terrible lung injury, which is how COVID-19 kills most of the people that it kills. So the reality is what I'm working on right now is almost constant COVID-19. But I, as so many others around the world, am praying and or hoping that this damned pandemic will be over. Uh, and when it is, I will be able to return to uh, this uh, religious writing. I think academically, right now, uh, I have a, a brief intellectual biography of W. W. Phelps. It's under contract with University of Illinois in their Mormon Thinkers series. That Bowman and Spencer are editing. And uh, devotionally I have a collection of essays that's done, that's due out next summer from Maxwell Institute and Deseret Book. Uh, and then I'm I'm working, I I'm, I'm trying to decide whether I'm really gonna go through with this, but I I kind of wanna write I've, I've started working on it, but I kind of want to write an intellectual history of food allergies. And that'll seem a little strange. It's not Mormon particularly, but I feel like all our fights about evil gluten and you know whatever other ingredients might be in our food is playing out in this really intellectually emaciated uh field of conversation and communication and i'm wondering whether i could in a sympathetic and kind and also rigorous way provide an intellectual history of food allergies because there's so much going on with them anyway i'm aware that's eclectic but that's that's
0: honestly what i'm pondering no that sounds (laughs) <laughs> that sounds really interesting. You no, know, I and thank you so much for your work on COVID nineteen. I mean, it's all it's definitely above my pay grade. But you and Greg Prince, I feel like you both have a lot in common. You both are, you know, practicing physicians and you're scientists. Well, at the same point, you're both fantastic historians of religion and Mormonism. So I mean, I just it just blows my mind that you're that you're able to do both of those things. I mean, it's <laughs> it just blows my mind completely. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much, Sam. Again, I just want to reiterate how great this book is. It's called Joseph Smith's Translation, The Words and Worlds of Early Mormonism. It's definitely a book you want to get if you study of American religious history, especially if you study Mormonism. It is definitely one of those fundamental books that will be talked about for the next couple decades and hopefully even longer than that. So Sam, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you taking time to be with me.
0: Oh, no problem.